such a wonderful transition to our focus for this morning, which is going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. You can grab your Bibles and open to that text now, 1 Peter chapter 2. We look to this book that is unlike any other book that has ever been written because it is inspired by God himself. He changes us through these ancient words. The Spirit of God works through the Word of God to accomplish change in our lives. And we're going to devote ourselves to that now over the course of the next few minutes. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 will be our text for this morning. One very dangerous misconception in the Christian life is that salvation causes the complete elimination of sinful desires. Many have despaired because they continue to battle sinful desires post-salvation. It's important for us to remember that there's no promise in God's word that sinful desires completely disappear after salvation. The changing of desires is a progressive transformation that will not be fully realized until we are glorified in heaven. However, one of the amazing blessings of salvation that every true believer experiences is not the complete elimination of sinful desires, but rather the presence of new desires. The things that we want change. An unbeliever certainly does not desire to live for God's glory, but new desires have been introduced for a believer. An unbeliever does not desire to obey Christ. Believers don't do that perfectly, but there's certainly a desire for it. The Spirit causes you to want new things, to develop new desires. And that is something miraculously that occurs at salvation. Well, our text for this morning is going to center on a particular topic of desire that every believer should be growing in. And that is a desire for God's word, a desire for God's word. Before we read our text, let me give you a brief overview of the context in which this is written. The book, 1 Peter, is written by the Apostle Peter. He's writing to many churches, many believers in a large area of what is now modern-day Turkey. He writes to them as aliens and strangers on the earth. Throughout the book, he refers to them as aliens and strangers who are just on a temporary stay here on earth. And one of the key premises of 1 Peter is that believers don't belong here. This is not our home. So he writes the book to help them to know how they can live faithfully in a world that is not their home. And unsurprisingly, a common theme for Peter in how we can live faithfully in a world that is not our home is the word of God. Already in chapter one, he's spoken about the value of the Old Testament for the believer. In chapter one, verse 12, He's already spoken about the efficacy of the word of God to accomplish salvation through the Spirit's work in verses 22 and 23. He's spoken about the unfading and enduring nature of God's word in verses 24 and 25. So this theme of God's word and its relationship to those who are living in a place that is not their home has been well established. God's word is significant and important for those who are living in a world that is not their home. But in our text this morning, Peter's going to acknowledge a struggle 
that is very real in the lives of believers. And that is despite the value of God's word that Peter has just been rehearsing at the end of chapter one, despite the value of God's word, we don't always desire God's word like we should. It's towards that reality that Peter writes verses one through three of chapter two. You can follow along in your Bibles as I read it. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. The structure of this text is is a little bit unique if you're not familiar with how Peter writes. The The central message, the central point that Peter is getting at here is placed not in the beginning of these verses, but actually right in the middle. That may feel a little bit odd, but Peter writes this way a lot. And your your translation may or may not make this clear, but everything in this passage revolves around a central command right in the middle of verse two. This entire passage revolves around a central command in the middle of verse two. Look to verse two, where Peter says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word. The central command of this text is like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word. Everything else that Peter says here revolves around that one imperative. The question that's placed before us by Peter is this. Do I long for God's word? Do I desire God's word. Now, I would imagine that most of us in this room would say, yes, I desire God's word. I've committed myself to hearing God's word regularly. I certainly don't despise God's word, but, but that's not really what Peter places before us here. It's more than that. It's not, it's not a neutral openness to God's word. Peter says, long for the word like a newborn baby longs for milk. That's what he places before us. If you've been around a newborn baby, you know that seemingly its entire life essentially revolves around feeding, feeding and sleeping, waking up from sleep to feed, to go back to sleep again, to wake up to feed. Every healthy newborn baby has a strong desire to feed. That child will cry and it will scream in order to receive milk. And this is This is a survival instinct within a newborn baby. The baby is not just pouting. The baby is not just saying, I want milk. It's not just saying, feed me or I will cry. The baby quite literally is saying, feed me or I will die. It's a survival instinct. This is a matter of life and death. A newborn baby desires milk. Like a man wandering through the desert requires water. Not only is that desire strong, But that desire is seemingly continuous. A newborn baby feeds. And just a few hours later, it is desperate for more. It is seemingly an unquenchable thirst. It is never satisfied. It's a strong desire. It's a continuous desire. And this strong and continuous desire is never viewed in a baby as as a problem. It's how a baby's supposed to function. Perhaps you've had a child that has struggled to feed, that seemingly didn't want to feed. We rightly perceive that as a problem. 
Something is wrong. They need to be helped. They need to develop that hunger. A baby with no desire for milk is a concern to its parents. Something's wrong. Now, thankfully, in our world, there's many ways around that common problem, but when Peter writes, there are two options. That baby will feed or it will not grow, which is why it's appropriate for Peter to describe a healthy infant as one who longs for that milk, who is desperate for it, who cries out and searches and yearns for that milk. Peter's command to us is to long for the word of God like that baby longs for milk. Long for the word of God like that baby longs for milk. Now, just a quick word on the translation of this text. Depending on the translation that you're using, the translation I read says, long for the pure milk of the word. Other translations may simply say, long for the pure spiritual milk and not mention the word. There's a funny word there in the Greek that could be interpreted as the word spiritual or could be interpreted as a reference to God's word. Here's the thing, no matter, without getting too deep into that debate, no matter how you interpret that word, I think it's clear that in this text, Peter is referencing the word of God. And that becomes especially clear when you back up above verse one and see the context of what Peter has just said that immediately precedes this. Look back to verse 23 of chapter one, and I want us to see the theme of God's word that carries all through these verses. Peter says in verse 23, you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, you've been born again through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn babies, long for this pure milk. Long for the pure spiritual milk of the word. Peter has been and continues to talk about the word of God and its role in the life of the believer. And regardless of how your translation interprets verse two, I think it's clear that what Peter's talking about is God's word. Taken with the verses that precede it, Peter is clearly communicating for us to long for, to strongly desire the word of God. Now, we need to be careful in this text because this isn't the only text in the New Testament that uses milk as an illustration of God's word for, for believers. But not all of those illustrations in the New Testament are using milk the same way. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 5 talk about the role of milk in the life of a believer, but they talk about it not the way Peter talks about it here. They talk about it as something for the immature and that once you mature enough, you move on to solid food. Scripture uses that milk metaphor that way. But it's important for us to remember, that's not how Peter's using it here. Peter is not saying this exclusively to immature believers. This is a text for every believer. One commentator rightly says that the status of Christians as newborn babies is a permanent condition. Now that would not be true in 1 Corinthians 3 or Hebrews chapter 5, but it is true the way Peter speaks here. It's a permanent condition. All believers are helpless babies in need of sustenance. The picture communicated here is that we are all reliant, all of us, on God's word for our growth, and we should hunger for that word. So the question before us today is, how is your desire for God's word? 
How is your desire for God's word? The question is not, are you open to it? The question is not, are you willing to endure it? The question is not, do you attend church each week? The question is, do you crave God's word? Do you long for it like a newborn baby desires milk? Now, Peter does not write this verse hypothetically. He's not writing to some occasional Christian who may someday struggle in their desire for the word. I think Peter writes this verse to every child of God because we all at times fail to desire the word like we should. We all do. Perhaps you woke up this morning and you're, you're here, but you aren't strongly desiring the word of God. We've, we've all experienced that. Perhaps you have days when you don't desire the word. Perhaps you've had weeks or even seasons of life where your desire for the word hasn't been what it should be. Perhaps you've never felt a desire for the word. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But for now, recognize that Peter writes these words not because of some hypothetical struggle that some Christians could potentially have. Peter writes this because he knows that every believer needs to hear it. He commands us all to long for the word like a newborn baby longs for milk. In one sense, this is a shocking command. Peter does not tell us to drink this proverbial milk. He commands us to desire it. He doesn't command us just to take it in. He commands us to want it. It's a shocking command. You may hear that and think, look, I can, I can make myself drink it, but I can't make myself want it. You know, if there's a, we all have different foods that we don't like, foods that we don't enjoy, and when there's a food that I don't enjoy, I can force myself to eat it, but I can't force myself to like it. This text almost feels a little bit like the, like the parent who tells the child, you will eat your dinner and you will like it. Peter says, not just eat it, want it, desire it, yearn for it like that newborn child yearns for milk. How can I develop a longing for God's word? Well, thankfully, Peter doesn't leave that question unanswered. Everything else that's contained in these verses revolves around answering that question. How can I develop a longing for God's word? Well, Peter's going to give us three lessons. Three lessons that can help you grow in your longing for God's word. How can I grow in my longing for God's word? Peter's going to give us three lessons that can help you to grow in your longing for God's word. The first lesson is going to come before that central command that Peter gives. We've acknowledged that in verse two, he gives that central command that everything else in this text revolves around it. And in verse one, Peter gives this thought that precedes the command that helps us to embrace the command. The first lesson is this, your sin discourages a desire for God's word. Sin discourages a desire for God's word. The central imperative to long for the pure milk of the word, it is preceded before Peter gives that command. He, he tells them something that needs to accompany that desire. Before he tells them to long for the word, he's going to give them a list of sins, a list of sins that get in the way of that desire. Look at verse one. Verse one, Peter says, therefore, 
putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. Peter, before commanding them to long for the word, says that there's something else they must be doing to really long for the word. Now, verse 1 makes even more sense in light of the context that's right before it. At the end of 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter delivered an important command for the churches he's writing to. He tells them to love one another. He says that they need to love one another consistently, to love one another fervently. And he talks about how important God's word is in that pursuit. Peter gets to chapter two, our text for this morning, and that command to love one another is not removed from his mind. The the specific sins that Peter lists in chapter two, verse one, they're all relational in nature. He says, set aside, put aside all malice. Malice is having ill will or being mean-spirited to someone. He says, put aside all deceit. Deceit is not telling the truth to someone. He says, put aside all hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is certainly a word that could extend beyond just relational sins, but within this list, Peter's referencing someone who's different depending on who they're around. They're, they're hypocritical. He says, put aside all All envy, envy is to be jealous of someone else's position or or their possessions or their station in life. He says, put aside all slander. That is to speak ill of someone else. All of these sins are relational in nature. So he's just commanded them to love each other. And in a moment, he's going to command them to long for the word. But verse one bridges the gap between those commands. Because Peter knows that longing for the word is only going to be present if the believer is rejecting the sin that gets in the way. In the context of telling them to love each other, he says, if you're not casting off those sins, you're not going to desire the word. To the one who would say, no, to loving the brethren, and yes, to loving the word, Peter says, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. If you have malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander in your heart, you're not going to love the word. So as a church, we must, we must understand that our relational unity, our relational peace, our relational righteousness is critical to our growth both as individuals and as a church body. We must love one another. Relational sins discourage a desire for the word. It's important for us to ask in this verse, why does does Peter specifically highlight relational sins within this text? And I don't think the answer is because relational sins are uniquely discouraging to a desire of the word. I think Peter's highlighting relational sins because he just commanded them to love one another. It's the topic that he's talking about. And so he specifically lists these relational sins because this text flows from the command for them to love one another. But there's a a broader principle behind this statement that is certainly true. And that's that the presence of sin, regardless of its category, relational or not, the presence of sin in our lives discourages a desire for the word. It's not limited exclusively to relational sins, though that's certainly the point Peter's making in verse one. Pride discourages a desire for the word. Lust discourages our desire for the word. Laziness discourages our desire for the word greed and unthankfulness and 
disobedience, and the list goes on and on. These discourage our desire for the word. When we let sin remain unconfessed and unrepentant in our heart, it does not sit there in isolation. It festers, and it eats away at godly desires, and it removes our desire for the very solution to our problem. Peter says, you need to long for the word, but if you let these sins reign in your life, you never will. Because the presence of sin in our lives makes us cold to biblical truth. Unrepentant sin in the heart of a believer is a, it's a sickness. When you've become physically sick, one common side effect of that is that you lose your appetite. We lose our desire to eat. You lack the desire and sometimes even the strength to fill your body with the nutrients that you need. The irony is that the very thing you need to give your body the strength that it, that it requires, that very thing that you need to do that is the thing you don't desire. You have no appetite. That's what sin does. It removes our desire for the very thing that we need. Our sin discourages a desire for God's word. Well, the central command of this text is in verse 2. Peter's expectation for a believer is a believer that wants to long for the pure milk of the word is that they need to deal with these sins. They need to confront them, they need to identify them, and they need to repent of them. The verb that Peter uses in verse 1 to describe what we should be doing with these sins is that we need to, look at verse 1, we need to therefore put them aside. We need to cast them off. This terminology is common in the New Testament. It appears in the put off and put on text. It's terminology, the same term that you would use to describe taking off a jacket and leaving it behind you. Now, the order of these verses is critical. It's important that Peter first says you need to be casting these things aside before he tells them to long for the word. The order of these is important. You cannot increase your desire of the word while simultaneously embracing sin. It's as if you want to enjoy your dinner. You want to enjoy your dinner, but you're filling your stomach with candy for the hour before you sit down to eat. Peter says, you need to, if you want to enjoy your dinner, you need to stop doing that. You must first repent of sin in order to increase your desire for the word. That's why James gives a very similar command in James chapter 1, verse 21. He preaches almost an identical message to Peter in this text. In James 1, 21, James says this. He says, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility receive the word. He prefaces the command to receive the word in humility with a putting off of sins that are going to get in the way. You will not receive the word in humility unless you deal with, with unrepentant sin. Now, don't misunderstand. This is not a fatalistic, if you have any sin in your life, you will never have any desire for the word. That's not what Peter or James are saying. I think we all know that to be true. The Christian life is a process of progressively identifying sin in our lives, sin that may have sat there for a long time and we didn't see it. But as we mature, we're, it's revealed to us that there are areas in our life where we can continue to grow. And that's a reality in the Christian life. This text is not to say you will never desire the word until you reach perfection. It's not what Peter's saying. 
This is saying that the refusal, the refusal to cast away sins will undermine your desire for what you need most. If you've identified areas in your life that are not submitted to Christ, you you recognize them, you see them, and you say, I'm going to hold on to that while simultaneously hoping my desire for the word will grow. Peter says that's not how it works. How's your desire for the word? Take, take encouragement from this text. If your desire for the word is weak, this text help us, helps us to understand. I need to evaluate my life. Perhaps there's sin that's, that's blinding me to the beauty of God's word. Perhaps there's things in my life that are getting in the way of that desire, that are removing my desire, that's making me cold to biblical truth. I think this text teaches us that evaluation and personal examination are an important step in your preparation to receive biblical truth. Confess your sin. You said earlier from 1 John, he's faithful, he, he forgives, and he softens our hearts. He makes us receptive to his wonderful word. That's our first lesson. If you find yourself lacking in your desire for the word, remember that sin discourages a desire for the word. It's only only after Peter tells us to be casting all these things aside that he commands us to long for the pure milk of the word. Our second lesson comes after that central command to long for the pure milk of the word. Second lesson is in the second half of verse two, and that's where Peter says that your sanctification occurs through God's word. Your sanctification occurs through God's word. As soon as Peter gives the command to long for the pure milk of the word, he follows it with a statement that explains the importance of the word. This little phrase at the end of verse two is intended to remind us about what God's word does, about the effect that it has on our life. Look with me again at verse two. Peter says that central command, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Long for the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So to help us to desire God's word, Peter says, remember, it's only by God's word that you grow. Remember that it's only by God's word that you grow. Now, the terminology Peter uses here is interesting. Specifically, he says that God's word enables us to grow in respect to salvation. When we encounter that word salvation at the end of verse two, we typically think of the act of justification that occurs when you are saved. But that's not how Peter is using this term here. The growth that he is referencing is not growth that leads to your forgiveness of your sin. The salvation that Peter is referencing in this verse is is what we may call eschatological salvation or, or our ultimate salvation that is not realized until Jesus returns. Peter uses the word salvation in this way several times in the book of 1 Peter. If you look back just at 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 5, Peter uses salvation to refer to something that believers are still waiting on fully. Look at verse five. You're being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter's not saying you're not saved yet, but Peter is saying you're waiting for the full realization of your salvation. We are, our salvation is real. It is secure. 
And yet it's not fully yet been realized when Jesus returns, when he defeats his enemy, and when those sinful desires are gone forever, when we are saved never to struggle with sin again. That is ultimate salvation. And we look towards that day. That's what Peter has his eyes on in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Growing in respect to salvation is the process of growth as you await your ultimate salvation. Said another way, the growth that Peter is speaking of at the end of verse two is your sanctification. So in trying to help his readers to desire the word, to long for the word like a newborn baby longs for milk, he reminds them, you need the word. You need it to grow. Apart from God's word, you do not grow, Peter says. You need it, so you should long for it. He, he reminds them of the effect of the word, the effect of the word in order to motivate their embrace of the word. He reminds them of the effect of the word to motivate their embrace of the word. And this is, this is a helpful motivation. Understood rightly, this reminder should help us. It should help us to long for God's word. Peter isn't the only one who does this. We see this in our world all the time. I, uh, I do not own an Apple Watch, but I spent some time on apple.com this week looking at a page that was trying to convince prospective customers to buy an Apple Watch. This page is called Why Apple Watch? And to motivate potential buyers, the page is filled with the effects of owning an Apple Watch. Here are the effects that are listed on apple.com. Why should you buy an Apple Watch? And they say, first of all, because it will track your fitness. It will track your fitness. You'll be more aware of what your fitness goals and needs are if you own an Apple Watch. You want that effect? Buy an Apple Watch. Apple.com continues, you should buy an Apple Watch because it will protect you. It will protect you. It will monitor your heart rate. It'll monitor your blood oxygen levels. It will tell you if you're not getting enough sleep. If you want the effect of protection, if you want that guardian angel on your wrist, buy yourself an Apple Watch. Apple continues, you should buy an Apple Watch because it will can keep you connected to the people you care about most. You'll be more connected. You'll be more aware because a connection device is always on your wrist. Apple continues. It can keep your family closer. Do you love your family? <laughs> not if you're not all wearing Apple watches. It's exactly what Peter's doing in this text. It's exactly what he's doing, except his reasons aren't ridiculous. He's presenting the effect of the word. He's presenting the effect of the word to motivate a desire for the word. And the effect of the word in this text is that it leads to your sanctification. The value of the word is that by it, you can be sanctified. The value, the effect, it leads to your sanctification. That is to say, you need. Every believer, every child of God needs his word. It is necessary for your spiritual growth. We recently in our, uh, in our Sunday school hour did a study uh, on, our, on our philosophy of ministry at Mission Road Bible Church, and we repeated this statement several times. We said, true change, true spiritual change only occurs by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. 
True spiritual change only occurs by the spirit of God through the word of God. You do not grow apart from God's word. This is why we devote ourselves each week to preaching through God's word in this church. This is why we place a high priority on biblical literacy in our church. This is why it's important for you to be growing in your knowledge of God's word. This is why we recommend good books that help us to think through and apply God's word. This is why we sing songs that have lyrics that align with biblical truth because God's word is where the power is. That's what the spirit uses. To remove God's word from a believer is equivalent to removing milk from a newborn baby. You need it. You need it to grow. Now, don't misunderstand. There are other gifts of God that he uses to grow you. Scripture tells us that we, we grow in as much as we submit ourselves to the spiritual disciplines, to, to prayer. We could say that difficult experiences grow us, that maybe a good Christian book that isn't the Bible can help us to grow, that a discipler who influences you helps you to grow. But here's the key. Those things are only sufficient for growth to the extent that they accord with God's word. They're only sufficient for growth to the extent that they align with biblical truth. A discipler who is influencing you in a way that's not consistent with God's word does not lead to true spiritual change. Those things must align with biblical truth. It is in their alignment with biblical truth that they're helpful and sufficient for our growth. The application for us is that we need to, we, we need to remember this. We need to remember this lesson. Remember that you are sanctified through God's word. Approach God's word with the recognition of what it does. Don't think of it as something that I have to endure because it's the right thing to do. Don't think of it as some form of dues that we pay to God. Don't think of it as inhelpful or unhelpful or ineffective. Don't think of it as old-fashioned or boring. Approach God's word with this perspective. I desperately need this. I need this. This is my lifeblood. Apart from this, I do not grow. Peter gives us the reminder so that we would remember this. Remembering this, I believe, will help you to long for it. And when you long for it, you're most prepared to benefit from it. One helpful reminder that flows from verse two is that while Peter wants us to desire the word, It's not merely a desire for the word that grows us. You are not grown merely by a desire for the word. We're not sanctified just by desiring the word. Peter says here, we're sanctified by the word. We're sanctified by the word. We're not sanctified by the desire for it. We're sanctified by the word itself. But it is those who desire the word Those who desire the word who are in the best disposition to benefit from what it teaches. The word sanctifies, more specifically, the spirit sanctifies through the word. But this text teaches us that we're most prepared to be sanctified by the word when we're longing for it, when we're hungry for it, when we're wanting it. We've seen two lessons that help us to long for the word. Number one, your sin discourages a longing for the word. Number two, your sanctification occurs through God's word. Both of those help us and motivate us to long for the word. And Peter has one more statement that we need to observe, and it's a third lesson that helps us to long for God's word. Number three, your salvation creates a longing for God's word. Your salvation creates a longing for God's word. 
In verse three, Peter concludes this this section with a brief statement that's important to his overall message. Let's look together at verse three. Get a running start, that central command. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted of the kindness of the Lord. If you have tasted of the kindness of the Lord. To taste of the kindness of the Lord, I believe, is to experience his saving grace. Surely tasting God's kindness could include more than God's salvific grace, his saving grace, but it cannot include less than that. The entry point for tasting of God's kindness is salvation. Now, Peter begins this statement with the word if. The word leads to your growth if, Peter says, if you have tasted of God's kindness. This is intended to function as a, as a condition which must precede everything else that has been stated here. He has commanded us to long for the word. To do that well, we need to be casting aside sin. We need to be remembering that we need the word of God to grow. But more than all of that, we need to be a recipient of God's saving kindness. If you have not been redeemed, you will not long for God's word. Not in a real and lasting way. You must have spiritual life in order to develop that spiritual hunger for his word. I think Peter puts this here first and foremost as a point of evaluation for those who do not have a hunger for God's word. Perhaps for those who have never had it, maybe you find yourself in that category. I've never really desired God's word. Perhaps for those who maybe maybe had a point a long time ago where there was some desire, but they've seen that completely fade from their life. And Peter places this statement here to cause his readers to make sure that they've tasted of God's kindness, to make sure that they have spiritual life. If you've never had a hunger for God's word, if you've never desired it, I think this text teaches us that we should examine our souls. It's a, it's a good reason to evaluate your salvation. I have no hunger for the word. It's a good reason to evaluate your salvation. Now remember, it's not despair in the midst of that. Remember, Peter writes this to every believer. He writes this to encourage every believer. Every Christian struggles with a constant and perfect desire for the word. Every Christian has had times of pursuing the word out of obligation rather than out of desire. Every Christian has had times when they've neglected God's word because they simply did not want it. So if you find yourself in a struggle here, this isn't a message that you should necessarily despair, but Peter does remind us that if we have not tasted God's kindness, we're not going to long for the word. And that should cause us to be introspective. Salvation creates a longing for the word. And if that longing is foreign to you, you may not possess that salvation. But this verse, I don't think it's just a reminder for those who have not experienced God's saving kindness. Perhaps you generally have a desire for the word. You generally have a desire for the word, but like every believer, you're struggling through a morning or a season where that desire has waned. The words that Peter writes in verse three encourage us to remember something, to remember the taste of God's kindness. Those who have tasted the Lord's kindness will desire the word. Not perfectly, 
but progressively. The taste of God's kindness continues to bring us back for more, and the Lord's kindness abounds as we encounter him in his word. At the end of 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, you were born again through the word of God. You were born again through the word of God. Said another way, God's kindness came to us through his word. In this text, he says, not only were you born again from the word of God, but you grow through the word of God. God's kindness came to us through his word. And those who have tasted that kindness, this verse compels us to continue to run back to that taste of God's kindness that came to us through his word. If you tasted God's kindness and salvation, you will keep coming back to the source. Because the taste of God's kindness is so perfect and it's so sweet that it will leave us desiring more. Those who have spent significant time in our home know that I love a brand of gummy bears called Albanese Gummy Bears. I think they are the greatest candy in the world. Their flavor is amazing, their texture is perfect, and I love them so much. I always try to have some on supply. There's a bag in my office right now, and there's a bag in our pantry at home. I'm amazed at how frequently I desire them. If I walk past the pantry, that, that perfect white bag catches my eye, and I want them. And I try to exercise discipline. I I only grab two or three. But as soon as they're gone, you know what happens? I want more. I want more. Never have I tasted one of them and thought that was so good that I never need to taste it again. It's never happened. The goodness of the taste creates within me a desire for more, not less. Keep coming back to the source. The same is true of the Christian life. The sweetness of God's kindness in salvation, which is accomplished through his word, creates within us a desire for more of his word, where more of his kindness is found. Tom Schreiner says it this way. The desire to grow springs from an experience with the Lord's kindness, an experience that leaves believers desiring more. Have you tasted God's kindness? The question is not, do you know about God's kindness? It's not, have you heard of it? It's, have you tasted it? Have you experienced the kindness of God? Someone could be well-educated in the flavor profile of honey, But until they've tasted it, they won't really have a sense. They won't really have that personal sense of what it is. You can know about something and not taste it. It is an experience with God's kindness that draws us back to his word. And so an application for believers from this verse is that we should recall the kindness of God expressed to us through his saving of our souls, through his word. Remember that. Reflect on the sweetness of the taste of God's kindness and let that build within you a desire for more. 
None of us. None of us desire the word like we should. But God is so kind to give us these lessons, to help us, to motivate us, to inform a greater yearning for God's kindness, a greater yearning for his words. It's when we desire the word. It's when we're longing for it. It's when we're like a newborn baby yearning for milk. It's when that attitude is ours in regards to God's word that we are most ready, most prepared to receive and benefit from the word of God. So let's be casting away sins that get in the way. Let's be remembering the effect of the word, the significance of the word that we only grow by the Spirit's work through it. And let's be recalling our experience with the kindness of God that we encountered in salvation and keep coming back for more. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. This is an undeserved grace by which we can grow. You've left us not to fend for ourselves. You've left us with what we need to be equipped to walk faithfully in a world that is not our home. Father, increase our desire for your word because ultimately we desire you. We love you and we want to grow in our relationship with you. Thank you for this gift that enables that growth. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.